I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. One that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius. This is Michelle. Hey, everyone. And this is Jason. Good morning, guys. And you are listening to Spaces Podcasts. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining us again. Uh, today, we're talking... Let's see, how do I explain this? So we're talking about urban parks, and we're also going to feature specifically Santiago uh, Metropolitan Park. And then we're going to talk a little bit about another project called East River Waterfront. Um, We have a guest in that's going to talk a little more specifically about that. But to kick this off, I wanted to start with you, Michelle. You you brought this to my attention. I've never been there to uh, Santiago Metropolitan Park. You have been. So you want to kind of kick this conversation off and tell us a little bit about your experience and when you went there and why you thought it was a good project to bring up for us to talk about. So one of the really neat things about the Metropolitan Park is in many ways, while it is a park, it feels almost like an amusement park um, in terms of just all of the activities and attractions that exist. So uh, kind of two highlights is you can actually take a funicular uh, from the western end of the park up to San Cristobal or to up to the statue of the Virgin Mary, which sits on the summit of San Cristobal. And that is just a really, really amazing gathering spot. There's actually a church up there 
don't know the name of the church. Uh, so even within the park, there's a church. And this statue, you can see quite literally from every corner of the park, which is really neat. And then the other attraction, which is really cool, is a cable car. Uh, and that cable car, I'm not sure exactly how many, how you know, how long, what the length is, but we did take it, um, again, from the western end of the park to the eastern end. And it's about a 20-minute uh, ride. It passes through different stations. You cross over a couple of swimming pools, which are, you know, again, an attraction or a public amenity within the park. Um, you're crossing over various hiking paths and bike paths and greenery. And you're, you know, so it's just a really, really neat attraction. There's a botanical garden within the park. I mean, so there's a lot going on there and not all tourists at all. I mean, this is a park that really truly is being used by uh, the community and the people of of Santiago, Chile, not only just for gathering, but but for you know use of the attractions and use of these you know amenities and um, just exercise and all of that. So we, I was blown away. I thought, what a cool what a cool place. And I will also say it was hot. I mean, we, it was it was very warm. We were there in February, which is their summer, kind of the dead of their summer. And despite the heat and despite the humidity, there were no shortage of people um, out and about and enjoying enjoying the space. Yeah. And you visited some of the other parks, right? Yes. Um, yeah, we did. I mean, you, it's hard to avoid. There's parks everywhere. Um, you just walking just around the town. You, not only do you run into squares, which I think maybe in some cases you would call an urban park, maybe more concrete, less uh, less grass. But the park you know, that I think I was most attracted to, aside from obviously the Metropolitan Park, just for its sheer size and just what it is, um, is the park that ran vertically, uh, not vertically, but uh, very linearly through the center of town, sitting on top of a freeway. Um, I just thought that was such a great use of space. And, and just, you know, because it's right in the downtown, it's a, it's an amazing place that people were, were literally just sitting in at all hours of the day, reading books and just enjoying. So, um, you know, no shortage of in, in such an incredibly dense city and an incredibly old city, literally no shortage of, uh, of places for people to gather. And people did gather. Yeah, so we're going to talk a little bit more about that and give some background on kind of how that park came to be, more about urban parks in general. And then we have our guest who has some familiarity with Santiago Metropolitan Park. And again, as I mentioned, we're going to uh, talk about uh, project East River Waterfront. So our guest is a project director at SHOP and has played a key role in several of the firm's most important commercial, cultural, and mixed-use projects. Since joining SHOP in 2013, she has been providing the office with top-quality design in a wide range of projects from competitions to multiple design commissions in New York City and across the globe. She has been leading the Seaport District Project in New York City since 2015, a project that she has followed from concept design and public approvals to construction. She has also been involved in several tech office projects, including Atlassian's New York City offices. She graduated in architecture from the University of Lisbon, where she received the Academic Excellent Award. Please help me welcome Andrea Teixeira. Andrea, thank you for joining us. Thank you. That's a great summary 
of of uh, my curriculum. Yeah, very impressive. <laughs> um, so, is there anything uh, that may have been left out of your bio? Any uh, hobbies or anything else you want to leave us with to talk a little bit about yourself? The only thing left, I think, it's uh, you know, I just came to New York uh, 10 years ago. Before that, I, I had a couple of years of work uh, in Europe. Uh, so in a way, I think actually the two experiences have been really good, even for the subject we are talking today, have a, a great sense of how public spaces are around the world and uh, the difference between you know dense cities like New York and other cities that are less dense and already have a, kind of a heritage in place in the public domain. So that's kind of the only thing left, I would say, is, is that extra experience uh, overseas. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much that. Okay. So just to kind of go back a little bit, how would you describe what an urban park is uh, and what that difference is? Or is there a difference between an urban park and a, uh, a regular park? I would say... Uh, the big difference is really that the urban park, it's connected to a fabric, a city fabric, right? Like by definition, uh, you think of an urban park with access or, or I would say even great access to the city. And it usually serves more, it's more specific to a neighborhood, meaning like it kind of, it's designed for the need of that neighborhood, generally speaking. I think though that's really the key in comparison to other parks. I think traditional parks, uh, it's kind of a broader term that can have, you know, can mean many things. It could be like, you know, a little square or an isolated park, but it's not really connected to, to a neighborhood. But definitely, I think that urban park has a, a very specific uh, definition and has to deal with the connection to the city. And usually I would say also, uh, in terms of architecture, it differs in terms of scale. When we think about the urban park, it's usually not just that little space of landscape, you know, with two chairs and a table, but it's more than that. Usually it's, it's, a, it's a bigger scale and has a diverse program. Some urban parks have more than others. It could be that the urban park sometimes is really just landscape and places to gather other parks add like retail and other programs, uh, case of Santiago, for example, uh, that contribute for the success of that park. But yeah, I think those three key elements are what define an urban park in general. Okay, that makes sense. Now, before we get too far into details, I want to give our listeners a little context of how urban parks have evolved. And to do that, you got to go back in time. It's 1840. Dark, filthy, unhygienic, and unpleasant conditions had consumed the working class, both at work and home. A committee that assembled to discuss the health of towns declared that preventative measures were required to combat the poor conditions that were arising from the rapid expansion and industrialization in urban areas. The town of Birkenhead in England had experienced an increase in population from 200 to 24,000 people in just 30 years. In 1841, Liverpool leadership suggested that Birkenhead should have a public park. 
nourished by the so-called hygienist movement, which aimed to combat resulting conditions of the Industrial Revolution, leaders in Europe and the U.S. looked to introduce areas that were intended to be places of solace, vegetation, recreation, and community engagement. In 1843, Parliament gave the Improvement Commission's authority to borrow money for the purchase of former farmland in Liverpool, England, to create a public park which is considered the first urban park in the world designated for public use. Designed by architect Joseph Paxton, Birkenhead Park inspired countless other urban parks across the UK, Europe, and North America. Park historians have identified four major periods of urban park evolution in America. The Pleasure Ground from 1850 to 1900, the Reform Park from 1900 to 1930, the Recreation Facility from 1930 to 1965, and the Open Space System thereafter. The first model, Pleasure Ground, was typically a large park that emphasized the beauty of landscape and nature. However, the expansiveness required them to be located on the edge of the city, making it unattainable to the working class who could not afford the expensive transport to get there. The era was associated with the American landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted, who was strongly influenced by Birkenhead Park. He and Calvert Fox won the competition to design Central Park for the rapidly growing city of New York. From 1900 to 1930, the Reform Park era grew in response to the disparities in access to pleasure grounds. This was an effort to bring landscaping principles to urban areas, displayed in the two sub-movements of the Small Park Movement, which was introducing landscapes in smaller parks, and the Playground Movement, which advocated for safe off-street places for children to play. In addition, planners in America viewed this era as an opportunity to reform the city socially by bringing citizens together that were culturally divided through immigration. These parks were a stage to show what it meant to live in America. A large number of urban parks around the world arise from government initiatives that acquire land through a process called eminent domain, repurposing that land for the public. This process occurred in New York for Central Park, but that's a story for another episode. In Santiago, Chile, a summit that offered travelers a complete view of the valley had long been underdeveloped, heavily deforested, and its quarries were used as the main supplier for construction materials. By the late 1900s, there was a significant commitment to reforest the area, and it was promoted as the green lung of the city. On September 28, 1917, the city acquired the land and adjacent areas to create the Santiago Metropolitan Park, one of the largest urban parks in the world. At 1,785 hectares, or 4,410 acres, the park now offers a national zoo, botanical gardens, two swimming pools, cable car, funicular, which is a cable railroad on the mountainside and now designated national monument, a church, picnic areas, and a privileged view of the valley and the city. The subsequent eras of park evolution interestingly began to veer away from the emphasis on land, vegetation, and traditional landscape principles. 
The recreation facility era from 1930 to 1965 was about dedicated spaces for recreation like fields and stadiums. By the mid-1960s, there was an ideology that activity can occur anywhere, and it was more about a network of spaces. Furthermore, this ideology had increasingly created opportunities for the adaptive reuse of abandoned and underutilized spaces and places. Urban parks can be a great benefit to communities, providing areas of solace, community building, recreation, nature, water storage and purification, safe routes for pedestrians and bicycle traffic, fresh air, and cooling for local temperatures. These benefits make urban parks an ever-growing priority. However, as communities increasingly contend with rising populations and urbanization, there is pressure to disregard these spaces. Considering that the world population has more than doubled over the last 50 years, from 3.68 billion in 1970 to 7.8 billion in 2020, it is imperative that we continue to incorporate them where feasible to avoid the poor conditions that we have endured in the past. You mentioned Santiago, and we talked a little bit about it in our intro, but can you talk a little bit about kind of what makes it such a special place? Santiago, to me, it, it's the largest park in Latin America. So I think just by scale, there, there was like already an amazing opportunity there, right? It is a win as an opportunity. And then I feel that why is it successful? Well, all the program and the features that it has kind of were the, the ingredients for that success. If we think about the park, I mean, encourages fun because it has a lot of program from the pools. Like it has a purpose in a way for people to go there. It is cultural has a cultural component uh, that brings also people there and essentially connects people to nature uh, in a large scale. You can hike, you can, you know, just going around, you are within, you know, the entire nature of that park. And it has great access, that cable car, I think it's, it's really key to make people come from the city to there without having to ha- kind of have that disconnection of like getting into a car and go to this park far away. So I think all of these ingredients are really what makes that park incredibly successful. There are others in, in similar in a way in other cities, like in Colombia, I can think of the, the park in Medellin, which is kind of similar, but I feel that it does not have the same scale and the same features that this park has. And that's to me like the key to to really uh, from what I have been reading and investigating for that part that makes that more successful than other parks. To the the comment regarding the cable car, in some ways, as it relates to connectivity, that cable car actually does literally get you from you know the very far west to the very far east of the city in a relatively short period of time without you having to take uh, the freeway or the highway or side streets, which would take a lot longer. So it's almost like dual purpose. Like on the one hand, you're, it's a gondola, really. I mean, when we say cable car, it's a personalized or individualized, you know, you can fit two to maybe six people in these little pods that, that are transporting above ground. So you have a phenomenal view. You're above the park. You're above the city. Because we didn't really talk about the fact that the park in and of itself is literally built on a hill. 
I mean, it's yeah. a giant hill, not a small hill. It's a big hill with a lot of topography. And so, you know, just in terms of connectivity, yeah, you're right. There's this connection point from east to west or west to east, or maybe maybe it's a little more southwest to northeast if you're being really technical about it. But yeah, I mean, that amenity is is dual serving in so many ways. I, I think you're totally right. I was. I know that uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, what's the the main feature. I, I think that's literally that that cable car. It's because it provides you a journey. I mean, you get into the cable car. As you go, you are coming to this hill. You are going to that like nature, right? And if you look back, you can see the metropolitan area. Like you're already in these minutes to the park, having a perception of the city. Because multiple times, like when you don't have this happening, you just get to the entrance of a park and somebody tells you what the city is about in a bunch of maps whatsoever. In here, you are offered that perception of what the city really is and this connection into this journey of going to the park. I've been in, in other parks. I mean, this I was talking about the one in, in Colombia, which we, if any of you or whoever will listen had that experience of going in a cable car and actually seeing the city behind, uh, it's pretty amazing. And I think in this specific Park, uh, it's this cable car. If we translate that, for example, for a city like New York, I think in a very micro scale, if you get to Dumbo uh, by walking on the Brooklyn Bridge, it's it's a different experience than you getting you know an Uber and stopping at Dumbo Park. It's a it's a special feature in a way that really makes the the experience to the park be already an experience in itself. I would say. Is it that anticipation that kind of builds and then that vantage point? Is that what you're kind of referring to that kind of build creates that experience in itself? I think so. I mean, if we think about the parks, right? Why is a person going to a park? Why do you need that outside? It's part of human being, you know, need in a way. I mean, we, we built, and especially in, in, in dense cities, in a way, we had all nature back in the day, and then we built so much that the nature disappears, and we just need it, right? We need to enjoy lives outside, we need to engage, we need to see people, and we need uh, reasons, like a purpose. They're really, like, I think these parks are, are solving for, in a way. It's to offer people spaces to gather and to engage and, you know, in many other things, the, you know, all the problems that come with it from pools to cultural buildings just add to that, uh, you know, need of enjoyment. So I think this access to the park, it's an extension of that enjoyment in a way. It's to me what, what it is. And from experience, uh, when I went to that park in Colombia, or even like if you go to Rio de Janeiro and you go to Cristo, you have a cable car to go there. You go through the mountain all the way there just to get to the statue, being that little space and then look out the city. I mean, it's amazing. And, and it's also, I think it's very interesting, like in abstract, I feel that when you go to these high hills or like platforms where you see out, you are offered a view that you'll never that it's if it was not public would only be private from a private house or whatsoever. So like if you don't offer that to people, they'll never gonna get to see it in mm -hmm. life. Like a perspective of a city only comes from a viewpoint, right? So all of these components are are offers to the public 
uh, to everyone that are are just places of enjoyment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's like if you compare Central Park in New York City, which mm-hmm. is very very flat, not a lot of topography. I would say that there are probably a lot of amenities and attractions within Central Park, but you contrast that with Santiago Metropolitan, and it's quite the opposite. And the other thing too is your access to the park is sort of threefold, maybe fourfold. Uh, one is you take a funicular that gets you to one point, but you're taking a funicular because of the topography. The other is if you pick up, if you enter the park on the on the opposite end, you can pick up the cable car from the bottom, in which case your view is going up. And that's what Andrea was referencing. Um, when we actually took the cable car, we went from the top to the bottom uh, because we had taken the funicular up and then we went the opposite way to come down. But the other way that you can get up is quite literally walking or mountain biking or running um, because there's a robust trail system that winds and I mean, we were saying you could spend an entire day from sunrise to sunset and not even begin to have seen every mm-hmm. aspect or component of this park or experience the whole thing because it's that big. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, it sounds like a place that if you are, if you have the chance, you have to get get over there, right? <laughs> it's a bucket list for sure. I think uh, I would say just from uh, almost like a, a designer point of view, I think that in Santiago, what I feel is that there was a huge opportunity that was not missed. And that was incredible. Like from any, any point, you kept places to hike, you put program on it to even offer more like program for everyone, right? Because not everyone just wants to go every day, see a statue. So you, you implemented more programming to the park uh, to generate that fun and like a purpose for going there. And then, and then just the access is, is another attraction. So I feel like it's probably the su- success of the park comes from there. But it's really, to me, interesting how, like, you don't have that all the time, having an opportunity and then, you know, just do not miss it and and, and make the best out of it. Um, and probably have, like, support from institutions or, or the state to, to make that happen. But it's incredible to see it. Yeah. So let's uh, let's switch and transition into uh, East River Waterfront project. Can you tell us a little bit about that project, kind of how the process went, and and just in we'll start in general with what the project is. Mm-hmm. East River project is the oldest probably project, one of the oldest that that shop has, um, and and it's still not completed, completely finished. It's a project that has been, we started in 2004. Um, it's a, it was a master plan, uh, pretty much just as a summary, like it comes from Pier 11, where you take the ferries today, it goes up to Pier 35, uh, which we completed a piece of right now. The big idea uh, for that space was really connecting the city to the water. So um, the city was, uh, that portion of the city was, you know, a piece of industrial buildings that were not in, in, in great shape. Uh, we didn't have any east-west connection. Uh, so meaning all the streets would just like stop at, at the FBR, this elevated car path for whoever is not from New York. 
So the big idea first was really to connecting like east-west to let the streets like come. If you walk on any street on the financial district, you would come down and arrive at the park and be at the water, uh, which at the moment was not possible because of a lot of obstructions under the FDR and also at the water, uh, old buildings. And then connect also make a pedestrian path that would allow people to come from, you know, very south on Pier 11 up to Pier 35. That was the big idea. Then, uh, you know, there was a, a first phase of the project that went first, uh, which is really what we call East River in a way, uh, which is from Pier 11 to Pier 15. Mostly were uh, landscape and, and places to gather and with special moments, especially at the intersection of streets. So today, if you walk from Wall Street, you have kind of a get down, like a special moment where people can stop and be almost at the water. Um, and similar with Pier 15, for example, where we, we took a profit of having a pier there and make a sort of a pavilion with more uh, public space on top, maximizing uh, the spaces for landscaping together. And also started to generate some spaces for retail and, and restaurants. So there's two restaurants in there. And it's also where people now take some uh, tourism boats from that pier. And then the phase two was Pier 17 already with a client. It was not just a, um, a public space where we were not just designing for the city. Um, we had a developer, a Howard Hughes, um, that were really doing that project. Uh, if anyone remember where Pier 17 was before, it was really a shopping mall that obstructed any pedestrian path to anywhere. Uh, I actually remember when I came my first time in New York, I wanted to take a picture close to the Brooklyn Bridge and I arrived to Pier 17 and like was completely like a building that would obstruct any views <laughs> uh, uh, to anywhere. It was like, I remember actually to think what a missed opportunity and, and felt that this is unbelievable. This is so rich, you know. Would never imagine that years later I would be working on that. Um, anyways, but it was the same idea, even though we worked with the developer to have, you know, uh, some retail space and also offices above that um, and a huge uh, rooftop for concerts and other events. Uh, we kept the same idea of making a very porous ground floor where you can walk. It's public. Everybody can walk on it and cross east, west, north, south, uh, which is... Uh, sort of an extension of that um, pedestrian network overall. And then the last phase that we are pretty much finishing right now was the reconstruction of an existing historical building called the Tin Building, which by many reasons was uh, um, in its previous position really tucked uh, under the FDR. Uh, the big idea there was to reconstruct the building and uh, setting it back to allow for that pedestrian network from south to north to pass through, really amplifying the paths for, for people to walk around the seaport. So it was really overall, uh, after a lot of work, I think the success of it is that we could really redesign the public realm around that portion of the city that it's so emblematic and so important. is one of the main views, uh, uh, one of the probably the best real estate that you have in New York City, in a way, uh, next to the Brooklyn Bridge. And I think the success really passes through what we offer to the public, to the people. 
it's well connected. Uh, the, the, the riverfront is uh, it's a pedestrian path that people can stay, gather. Um, it's also really large in scale. So we think it's successful by the addition of, of this public realm in New York City. Yeah. So it started as, uh, if I'm understanding correctly, it started as a city-funded and directed yes. project, right, for the yes. master until plan? Pier, yes, until Pier 15, um, uh, it was literally a, a city project that took forever to be approved. Yeah. It's also, uh, without going too technical here, is incredibly hard to build in the water because any yeah. pier, any addition of platform, literally where you can build on top, even if it's for a park, is incredibly expensive because you got to do piles, you know, in the water. And, and that's a project in itself. Uh, and unfortunately, in that part of the city, uh, those piles, those platforms were incredibly deteriorated. So they needed to be rebuilt. Um, but uh, it was funded. It was it was done. Um, it was actually the reason why Pier 15 uh, was became a pavilion, became like elevated because in the, in the the, the first idea was to generate a larger pier for people to gather and then it was too expensive. So we just did it. Okay. So we'll do it on, we extend it on top and, and actually offer some revenue for the city uh, by having these retail spaces. But yeah, up to, up to that part was, was uh, um, purely public. And then uh, pier 17 uh, and the building I was telling you uh, behind was what was had the lease and, and was developed by a developer. Uh, still with a lot of engagement uh, with the city because there are plenty of parts of the site that are completely public and remain public. Um, so it's a semi-public, semi-private uh, project, I would call it. Okay. What would you say was most the most complex part of dealing with our uh, East River waterfront? And then kind of expanding on that, maybe what's the most complex part about an urban park in general? I would say that just generally speaking, the most these projects are are tougher because you are working with public land. So by itself, just just by being public and not being private, you already need to um, engage uh, with way more entities, go through a completely different city approval process. So way more processes like double, triple than any other project you have. And, and then, you know, the number of those really depends where, where your site is. Uh, East River was incredibly complicated, uh, and I'll explain why. I think from a design perspective, by the fact that, like, the questions you got to ask to develop that design are really related for, you know, the demands or the needs of everyone in a city and not a very specific niche. So design-wise, you kind of need to have a broader uh, range of like questions you got to solve for and then in terms of the, the process itself how you make the process go through how you build you actually get to build that it's complex by the amount of approvals that you got to have i'll give you a quick summary for the east river or the seaport i mean it's a project that the site itself belongs to the city then the area under the fdr belongs to state so you need city approval, state approval. Then portion of the site is within the historical district. Whoa. And we oh. had a historic, <laughs> so belong, you need the approval from uh, LPC, which is the Landmarks Commission. And you have a historical building on the site, so you need approval from SHIPO, 
who is the you know the entity that approves the, the building in itself, and and because you need to connect with public transportation, which I think is the key part of any um, uh, urban park. It, it must be connected uh, with public transportation, and and which can be like because of the ferries or buses or bike lanes, absolutely important in pedestrian network. You need to change, uh, you know, roads and and paths that were there before. So you need approval from city planning. Beyond, you know, DOBs of this world and everything else that it's just, uh, you know, normal for any other project. Um, so that I adds complexity. A, I think you deserve a medal just for going through all of that. <laughs> I mean, that sounds scary as it is. Usually you're dealing with I know, a couple of them. I know. Yeah. Well, Pier, Pier 15, I think it took only, and it's a little pavilion in a way if you think about it, it took, uh, I think, eight years to be approved. Uh, I was not part of it, but equally to 2017. I mean, I, I have been at shop for seven years, have been working on that until now. But yeah, but like you need all of that. And I would say that, as you said, it, it's really tough. So so why would you be on it? Why would you fight for so many things, right? Uh, I think because the outcome is that you change a portion of the city, like your design is going to be, you know, is going to add quality for the life of million people. And is going to be part of the fabric of a city. And by the fact that it's an urban park and it's well designed, hopefully all the parks are well designed and serves all of these purposes, is going to stay there forever. I mean, even like if you think about it, like back in the day, uh, plazas, coliseums, everything that was done in other eras was done with a purpose of serving the public. Or, for example, you have a big plaza because back in the day, you didn't have internet, didn't have anything. If you needed to do an announcement for people to understand what was going on in the city or if war was coming, you're doing, you needed the space for people to be there in large. You know, so in a way, the actual, like the contemporary translation of what that was back in the day is really that. Like it needs to serve like million people. And if you design for that, uh, you're really changing uh, or improving the quality of life of that people in comparison to any condo tower residential project that will only change the people within the building, even a cultural project. You are giving an experience usually for people that visit the building and then go out. That's why usually the successful museums, for example, and nowadays you can, I can point a few always tend to try to make like a plaza or an arrival where people are not just coming in and out of a building, but actually stay there and contemplate and have a place together. So even within the like a, a small site, that comes from the purpose of of not just getting an experience of somebody within a box, right? Doesn't matter how beautiful, how amazing that box is. So I think that the the that makes those projects way more worth. And that's the key of us, like, you know, really like, let's get through this and let's get the, the best out of it. But it's complex. It's complex for, for those reasons, the city approvals. And also, I think that you need to work very much with everyone throughout the process, uh, builders included, because of all of these, like, you know, step-by-step -step approvals in order to get that through. But it's it's very worth it, I think. It, it's amazing to now, you know, like, after all the... <laughs> 
I don't want to call it pain, but like after all of the hard work, for example, for Pier 17, then going to concert in that rooftop and tell me that it was not worth it. You know, like you're looking at Brooklyn Bridge. It's not windy because it's not on the top of a tower. It's amazing. And it's New York. And I think that uh, you, you really feel like you, you, you really changed something in a city, significant. So I, I just... I just realized that I had mentioned earlier on, on this show that I'd been to the Santiago Metropolitan Park. Uh, we've discussed that. But I also just realized that a month prior to me going to the Santiago Metropolitan Park, I had been to Pier 17. I was in New York in January of 2019, uh, so a little over a year ago, and we stumbled across sort of not on purpose, but we found ourselves on the riverfront. We had been at Dumbo earlier in the morning. Uh, We took a ferry from Dumbo across, and then we were sort of just exploring. Now it was the second week in January and it was, you know, I think 20 degrees outside. So very, very cold. Um, Pier 17, it correct. It has a, an ice skating rink on the roof. Yeah. They have summer, um, summer and winter. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In the winter, so, yes. So one of the, I guess, maybe a question for you, because what I did notice, and I don't know if it was because it was seasonal, but it appeared that there was still a lot of growth um, and leasing to be had in the Pier 17 building. I mean, it was, it wasn't a ghost town. There were a lot of people there and we actually had a small bite and a, like a, I think we had a hot toddy or something at the little restaurant mm-hmm. next to the ice rink on the rooftop. And mm-hmm. we were looking out over the Brooklyn Bridge but I do remember thinking, well, I wonder who owns this, and I wonder what the lease-up is like, because it seemed like there were still quite a few vacancies mm-hmm. within the space. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it's not, uh, I think there is still some leasing uh, to be done. It's recent, right? Like, we, uh, I think that the, the roof was really what kind of opened first, because it was already there, was completely done. And there were a lot of uh, leasing spaces still to be done on the, on the ground floor and that like kind of village of retail. More of those spaces have been leased uh, right now. So, um, you know, they will progress uh, and have more, more of those open. Uh, and I think like it's, it will be uh, easier to see like once that's open and also the building that it's under construction in front of it, it's completed. Uh, that's when really that portion is going to work as a integrated retail space from the financial district to the water. Uh, that has to deal with leasing for things from normal from a developer. They open what they could. Uh, and also there was uh, an intent of, even though they were still working on those spaces to let um, the pedestrian path be open so people could already circulate within that. So if you see like, try it as much as possible to like just uh, cover and block what they need to, to, to make those spaces um, to finalize those spaces and let the pedestrian go through. So that's ongoing and will be, you know, uh, I believe, I mean, I don't know now with the COVID what, what's going to happen, but probably this year, if you pass by, you'll see there is way more stores open than before. Well, uh, right. but- yeah, you had me at ice rink. So well, I'm in. <laughs> that's for the winter i mean what can you do on the, in new york you can't really be outside in a rooftop so yeah there's some problem for for children to go there i mean a good place for ice cream i would say also 
highly impressed by how, you know, the landscapers and developers put together these massive parks and, and um, I mean, just the amount of stuff that goes into them from all the irrigation and the plumbing and the, I mean, just everything. And then not only that being on the water. So having to build with retaining and, you know, pumps all over the place, I'm sure. And, and all those other kind of things. It's really cool. Yeah. I could, I could be here for hours to tell you how you bring services to a building in the water yeah. and far away from land. So if it, just as a like very short story, all your, your services really kind of stop at South Street, right? The last street before the water. And these buildings, especially Pier 17, are far out, are beyond FDR. So just the amount of like thinking and approvals needed for these odd exceptional condition because in a lot of approvals if anyone went through it usually it's like a checkbox like all right you need this much feet from the street all done compliant whatever and you are constantly working in exception right and time time passes and it's money and there's a lot of complexity within that and mm-hmm. also like everything goes it's in the water it's really like yeah. you're creating an interstitial space that otherwise would be in land completely new and we're super restricted because you can't really build much in that, that specific uh, site. Like uh, the heights are restricted by, uh, you know, envelope rules, zoning. And uh, that was a project in itself, I have to say. Uh, that sometimes is <clears throat> boring, but uh, in a, you always need to think about if you don't go through that and you make that happen, then you don't have any building. So you got to do it. But I mean- uh, it's crazy because when you think about like all the stuff that's normally under the infrastructure, you got compaction and everything else you're dealing with. For the most part, the stuff doesn't move. Right. But then you take something out through the water and you got cabling and suspension, underwater welding, you know, all these other kind of things that go along with it. And you're not dealing with something that maybe shakes a little bit or could possibly go this way. It's constantly no. under a flow tension no. of this. And it's just, it's a whole nother world. That I, I feel. <laughs> uh, but I think it's amazing that, there, that was not a give up, you know, that there still is an opportunity and, and people, uh, there was a developer thinking that way and, and make that happen because in this specific site in New York, more than others, more even than Domino, for example, uh, Park or even Dumbo, I think it was very ashamed for a city like New York to not have that being improved and, and given to people it was really a part of the city that I, I have to say more than other parts of the city was was in need for this project to happen and for these spaces to to occur and, and be given to financial district to be honest like without it now it's easy to see it but if anyone remembers what it was before it was really like a missed opportunity i would say yeah. i mean and he, I think that's why politicians also in community with a lot of backing for it but was uh, welcoming these spaces to to happen I mean, do you think of construction from this standpoint? You know, you look at it like we, we deal with the SWEPS program out here and we think that's such a difficult deal because you're talking with, you know, stormwater runoff and those types of things, right? There's no runoff here. You make a mistake and it's like in there. So the, the different restrictions and programs and stuff that are, you know, dealing with Coastal Commission and everything else, like it's, it's that level times 100. And that's what I'm saying. Like I, I get frustrated enough with, you know, BMPs around those types of things. It's like, I can't even imagine like being like constructing inside of it. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's a whole, I mean, it's a whole nother expertise that most of us would never be exposed to. Did you guys have to bring in a a special consultant 
to manage that that infrastructure part and and what would and what who is that yeah so i mean the biggest difference is that as i was saying the pier itself so like everything below the building it's a project in itself yeah uh so we had a structural engineer langan mm-hmm. and langan and others was not just like a few others but specific to design that pier and design, you know, the movement of the pier and understand how you could accommodate for all those services uh, within water. Uh, so we had in the different projects a specific uh, consultant uh, for for that portion of of the of the project. I guess I'm curious: was there some sort of like special uh, like maritime kind of water specific engineer that had to be brought in? Engineers for the the reason why we had the specific engineer for that pier was not just because of structure yeah. uh, or loads was because they are uh, uh, they have a lot of expertise with maritime projects. Okay, yeah. so they design uh, structures within water. They okay, have more expertise for that. Otherwise, you would have the same structural engineer for the building. Uh, so not only that's a project in itself, as obviously as you can imagine, adds more time and management in terms of coordination of multiple consultants uh, with multiple expertises and, and, you know, generating a lot of like problems to solve in many ways. And we're kind of like the coordinators for that, but, um, but it's essential because otherwise like you don't really know, uh, you don't have confidence that you know what you're dealing with um, in a way. Got it. And in a very specific way, like what they do is like beyond having expertise on knowing how, how deep the piles need to be. Like they have a lot of data they are based on um, uh, in terms of uh, water tights, uh, you know, the the soil you're you're putting your piles on, uh, the movement, etc. So they will give you that knowledge for the project. Yeah. Gotcha. Now, kind of thinking about just general uh, society, what societal changes that we're going through now or any changes that you, that you've noticed will sort of affect uh, the future of urban parks? Societal changes really come from a need, right? And it's in a way our our job to to solve for that need. And the need that they have today is really what's going to dictate that project in the future. In a way, we are like solving for the future in, in terms of how we we design it. So in a way, if I, I think if I speak about what's now, I'm really like telling what's going to happen in the future in a way. Um, I think definitely, broadly speaking, there is this demand for connection, like connection to nature, connection to the city you live in and being connected overall, which will going to generate the quality of, of the city that you live in. I don't think that back in the day we were you, you could see people so like in need of these uh, nature and public spaces. Uh, I think cities evolve quite much in terms of construction and uh, real estate, but these public spaces in a way were sort of forgotten. And uh, there were a lot of opportunities out there, especially for coastal cities. Uh, you see the case of New York. See how many parks were built over what? last six years, East River, High Line was finished, Dumbo, Domino. And uh, and this is not just like a trend, it comes from a need of 
we need spaces for people to gather. And this has happened also in Europe. In a lot of old, there's actually European funds uh, for a lot of, uh, especially old cities um, and uh, in coastal cities, I would say, turn your cities to the water, provide more spaces for people. Generally speaking, I think there is that demand more even from neighborhoods or like residential, you know, for the habitants of any city in a, in a larger scale. And maybe because I have been working a lot with tech companies for the past three, four years, there is also a political intent or even I would say a, a financial intent to make cities better just so they attract certain companies to come there. Hmm. In case of the, the tech companies, which is not all the companies, but uh, they are massive. They have a lot of people, right? Anytime they look at like opening offices, et cetera, they look at the quality of the city they're going to have their offices at. And purely from the fact that with the remote work that, that they have, people can work from anywhere. So how do you convince people to go to a, to a city rather than the other? And there is one, that's one aspect that has been on the table uh, on developing certain projects. And I think that uh, I know that certain cities are, are seeing these public spaces and also infrastructure and public uh, uh, transportation, like the connectivity that ultimately generates your quality of life in the city as uh, one of the, the, the factors to, to make a city attractive and bring out the type of companies uh, to that city. And obviously with that, you generate a lot of, you know, revenue jobs and, you know, your, your economy of that city is, is higher. So ultimately the quality of public spaces is, is a demand from people. It's something that people are looking into. I think the technology and the fact that we can work remotely or work from anywhere compar in comparison to our past, we are, you know, we, we move around very easily. Like, it's not difficult today to a family from New York get a job in, I don't know, uh, Europe, Australia, whatever it is, and just go. If, if you can offer, you know, a, a great quality of life, not just the salary you're going to make, like people are actually taking into account where they're going to live. And um, I think that, um, uh, and I know that cities have that as a, um, uh, the public spaces are kind of linked to that demand uh, currently and cities want uh, politicians of cities want cities to be more attractive because um, there's a competition out there actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think that that's like a probably number one factor. Like we have a higher demand for quality of life in a city and therefore we need to solve for that need. Uh, and, and these public spaces uh, are what, are somehow what's going to define that quality of life. I think in cities, actually, uh, and I don't know if you, if you guys agree with that, but I, I was not born in, in a dense city. And when I was working in Europe, uh, working in Brussels, working in Copenhagen, those are not like super high dense cities in comparison to New York. And, um, and also we have great residences. So funny enough, when I was, when I left, uh, I studied in Porto Australi in Barcelona. When I left these two cities, South European cities, where you have, you know, you usually have a great apartment, I mean, in comparison to New York. And I went, and it's coastal cities too. So actually you go more to the beach rather than to a park, you know, to have fun or like do a picnic with people. 
And then I moved firstly to Brussels and everybody goes to a park and uh, you barely have sun. So when you have sun, you just get your bike and you go to a park and like it's, it's packed. It's like London, right? So I started to understand what uh, urban park really does for a city um, because the only place, if it's not a coastal city and it's not near the beach, that you can go to gather with people and you need that. So even from experience, uh, these public spaces are, are key to make the quality of life of a city really be, you know, in a high standard. You know? I, think, I think that's key, right? Because like you're talking about when people are in a really densely packed area, they, they have a craving for A, to be open and free, if you will. So these free spaces and open spaces provide that, but also provide a gathering place to be social. Because if you're in a densely you know, packed area, there's no gatherings to be social. And so you're kind of combining the two needs at that point. And it's kind of funny on the timing of this because of, you know, a lot of these cities that we're talking about where they are so densely packed, you know, now with everything that we're going through with the recent, you know, COVID thing, I know, I know, we're still in the middle of it too, right? People just aren't looking at it, but um, with the recent COVID thing, there's, there's a lot of question as to whether people are now going to start avoiding densely packed areas and wanting to get back to, you know, suburban you know, suburban type type lifestyle. And then, you know, but in a suburban area, which is more where I am, you have open space and backyards and all these other kind of things. So, but you still need the social piece. So is it the social people coming to your home? Is it still going to some other open areas? You know, what is that? But yeah, I mean, you know, Chicago, New York, San Francisco, all those other kind of places, you're right. You see these parks and they're just packed with people because they need to get away from the rigidity of, you know, normal day life. I would say that in New York, I mean, and, and it, it, it's really a, a scale of like what you get with your with your residents, you know, like generally speaking in New York, these parks are your courtyard, are your balcony. You don't have that in yeah. apartments, generally speaking, yeah. right? So yeah. then if we start to think and with the COVID, I think like we get a lot of these questions and we do a lot of like gatherings with clients, et cetera. What, what's going to change? Yeah. <laughs> uh, in a building scale, I can tell you what's going to change more or less like filter air, like naturally ventilation, well, clap your hands that people are understanding those things are needed. And the future proof of a building, it is not a glass box. Uh, because if you have a glass box, you are dependent on mechanical systems and you probably are not able in a COVID time to have 10 people in your office. So welcome naturally ventilation if you can. But in an in a urban scale, I think is really providing more of these spaces because in a city like New York, I mean, in a practical way, the fact that you cannot get outside and you need to be at home means in New York that you barely have natural air, you know, for, for yeah. quite a lot of time. Yeah. So these parks, you see Domino, I think it was amazing when they put the circles and like let people go there as long as you're in the circle and not to put like, you know, the distance is is I don't know if you guys saw, but like they, they on the grass, they made some circles. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. They everybody knows well. If I'm in my circle, I'm I'm in a right distance from each other. Anyways, imagine if that we had a great amount of spaces like that that would have relieved so many inhabitants of New York, uh, and and you know not get to the to the extreme of being all day at home, you know, and have no no way to get out. So, more of these spaces, I think, is the answer for the future, and better of them, and accessible uh, to people. 
Yeah, the other the other part of today's social climate that I was I wanted to mention and kind of get your thoughts on is this conversation that's finally starting to arise about disenfranchised communities and and their uh, lack of access to certain elements or these type of parks not being introduced in those communities. Um, any conversations that are starting to arise within shop or um, that you're just hearing on that front? I think that there's, there's two things in, in two aspects of it. Uh, one, it's, you know, if, if you do have these spaces and you're just focused on how do I connect better to the other low income or whatever other parts of the city that are not, do not have as direct access to it. And I think that in a case of New York, for example, making these parks near the water, have like public transportation to those, you know, in bike lanes, linking everything up. I think it's uh, in the bike lanes that were done, for example, on the west side of Manhattan, uh, where you can really come from like, you know, Harlem down were key for that. But I do think, uh, and this is less related with architecture in itself, but more related with, you know, politics in the city. I, I do think that we should look uh, and invest in, in the same quality of spaces uh, in areas that are um, that do not have any of these spaces uh, nearby. So it's not just like saying like, you know, you have a problem of all of these neighborhoods and you, you get them connected to, to spaces that are, you know, great, welcoming. But if there was a look and an investment on neighborhoods that are not functioning that are not that don't provide any type of public spaces that actually even by not providing those are less safe because if you have a park uh, for i'll give you an example it's having public space under that fdr by default was not very welcoming it's it's like you don't feel safe because you have shade you like feel you are going through like a, a dark space etc so by investing on making that space better, uh, you you welcome people to go there, and, and automatically it, it transform from a, like an unsafe to a safe place to stay, and people go there to do sports, etc. This happened in a very prime part of the city, connected to financial district. If there was a program or an investment, a special investment of doing this in neighborhoods that are not um, of high income. Uh, understanding that maybe you you're not gonna just re- gen- generate a lot of revenue or bring a, a niche of the society there, but you are improving the quality of spaces of of that neighborhood. I think it would be key, especially in a city like New York, that it's a rich city. Like there is there is probably a lot of money out there if there is a, a an intent to improve those areas. That I would say that, for example, a little example of that, it's pure. 35 that we just finished still not in the most low income parts of the city but it's near a neighborhood that it's uh and has low income and it kind of serves more that neighborhood that the pier 15 etc that it's connected to to financial district i do think that that should be almost like a project in itself so it's not about like finding an opportunity and okay this is a great location there is a site here that we can do something with and we're going to generate an urban park but be specific to those neighborhoods and engage with community. That's one of the things that in New York occurs, doesn't occur in many other cities in the world. Another approval we needed to have was community board, by the way. And it was sometimes the hardest, uh, uh, it was hard, but it was good for us to understand 
what were the needs, you know, and you better understand what, what that neighborhood, what actually the people from there really wants out of that public space. But to respond to your question, I think that's most likely if you are building spaces like this low, near low income, it's not going to be done by a, a developer because there is a developer is not going to build anything there. It's going to probably need to be subsidized or, you know, be a project made by the city, the government, the state whatsoever. And it should be a project in itself, I think. Yeah, it's definitely going to be require uh, city and state investment to improve different areas. Um, everyone's so afraid to to invest in communities because they think it's going to get damaged by uh, the bad, bad actors, bad characters. But I think more often than not, the good people outweigh the bad and will defend a good quality space against um, other people. And when you have people that are actively involved in that space, if it's a well-designed space and they want to be there, it's not some, like you mentioned, covered in shade and kind of that sort of shadowy place, um, people will be there. And if it's occupied, then there's no chance for someone to, to do something bad. And I would say people are the the activators of, of the space. Yeah. Look at East River, the, the portion of East River that it's not in financial district. So Pier 35 and then a portion of the FDR, that it still will still need to be developed, like Link Pier 17 to Pier 35. But around Pier 35, which connects to a different fabric, uh, uh, city fabric, you see the people from that community and they are not in the high income kind of communities, uh, activating that space. Mm -hmm. Majority of the time, they are the ones that are there. And if you see it, it's safe when you have people there, right? It's less safe when you feel like a place that has no one there, kind of don't feel like going. And uh, it's exactly to your point, like they will activate the space and probably be way more there than, you know, the high income, let's say neighborhoods where you probably just go there on the weekend. You know, if there is some kind of retail or coffee shops, you will go, but you're not activating the space like almost like 24-7. Like you don't you don't exercise, for example, outside. Everybody's exercising in the, in the East River, uh, um, especially near that kind of neighborhoods, not, not like the financial district people that has a gym in the tower, you know. So just in a practical way that's, that serves more the, that those neighborhoods, as I was saying, like the, the kind of the backyard of your apartment rather than, you know, the, the high income communities that go more for, for a walk and, you know, recreation. Yeah. Uh, one last question to wrap up. What's one thing that designers, builders, developers, anybody that you think would be appropriate, uh, what's one thing to consider when approaching an urban park? I would say engagement, like being working as a team, I think it would be key. If you're not talking about the specific like design aspect of it, uh, but you you must work uh, with the same goal and as a team to get these things through. Otherwise, it does not happen. Uh, even developers would would give up if there is not a strong team pushing these things through, because it's extremely hard. Uh, it's uh, takes twice or, or triple the time uh, to, to, to be implemented. And I think that you really need uh, key people from designers to builders to you know, politicians uh, to work as a team throughout to make these projects happen. 
Yeah. Great point. Thank you so much, Andrea. You have such a great perspective. That was awesome. Thank you. That's all for this episode, but keep listening for a sneak peek of our next episode. This show is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star rating and a review on your preferred podcasting app. It helps others find us, and your support is the only way that this show grows. And don't forget to connect with us through our Facebook community, Instagram, and see the random thoughts and articles that we share on Twitter and LinkedIn. But before you go, next time on Spaces Podcasts. My wife and I went to a show at the Whiting Theater, and I remember using the bathroom at the intermission, and this was right at the beginning of all this. So I turn on the faucet at the theater, and it's just like blowing, just running brown, like super brown, rusty water. And I was, it's like, wow, that's crazy to think about. And and that was really the eye-opening kind of beginning. And thank you again for spending some time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.